Joseph here, and I missed you. The last two weeks I've been on the road. It's crazy busy. I'm trying to get my team to figure out a way that we don't actually have to inhale. That could be, that would decrease the amount of time inefficiently processing our lives these days. It has been really crazy busy. And I have an announcement to make about all that busyness and what it relates to the live stream at the end. So stick around for that. But actually, that's nothing you should be sticking around for compared to what you're about to experience. I so much needed this particular visit with Byron Ernst. He has been somebody who I've known forever. It's one of those people you meet online and you just think maybe someday we'll actually get to have a conversation. And that day has finally come. Um, I just want to give you a background. It's kind of a, I, I could go really long on this background, so I'm going to try not to, so we have the bulk of time to speak with him. But, you know, he, he got his background education at Purdue and continued on and got his master's degree at Purdue. And then after that, got a doctorate degree from Walden University and then figured that, it, you know, who, what's a doctorate really in the end that you got to keep going. And so he went to a place called Harvard. You may have heard of it. Um, and he went to their graduate school of education and kept going to their graduate school of education and continued on and on and on in what I think he is probably not only does he talk about education, but he is the embodiment of what it means to be a lifelong learner. And I tend to go to his blog site because he is such a voracious reader that he's like the crib note section of the bookstore, just wide open. Plus he believes in reading from a lot of different disciplines, which is a fabulous way for, uh, for you to learn. And, and it really fits into some concepts that we're gonna talk about today because he is, a champion of something he calls intersectional learning. So we'll get into all of that in just a minute. Without further ado, probably took too long in the intro, but it wasn't worth it was beneath you, sir. Uh, thanks for being with me, Byron. Thank you for having me. This is a long time coming. I, I agree with that, but so glad we're having the conversation. Well, let's kind of, I'm going to pop up your book. I'm going to get out of the way in this shot and I'm going to pop up your book because I think this is a good place for us to start, right? This is a, a fabulous book. It's an easy to read book. You can say, well, I'm not in education. It looks like this, you know, the hand in the back of the room is going to be a book only about educating and educators. There's definitely that. There's all of that in there in a bag of chips. But it's a, probably a broader story of kind of society and the role education plays uh, in society and what what we all need to do to be a part of making education relevant. Uh, you start the book, and I'm just going to do this, and I'll, I'll throw it over to you. Um, since there's a lot more words in this book than what I'm about to read, you can kind of embellish wherever you'd like. But you start the book by saying, education exists in the larger context of society. When society changes, so must education if it is to remain viable. So I want to kind of take that in the context of, oh, my God, society just changed a, a little bit in the last year. So um, kind of what should we be thinking about? Now I got to get your book out of my head, uh, literally. Uh, what should we be thinking about in terms of the interface of society and education and the world that we live in today? You know, I, I love that you pulled that, that part out of it because I, I think that's the whole premise behind how I do think about 
education and and how I think about life, right? So we are in day and, and people, we get in meetings and they, they ask me this because I've been doing this for a year now, over a year now, but we are actually in day 443 of the pandemic. I don't know whether you knew that or not, but um, when it was officially named, um, I thought it was a rock group, the who they were talking about, but when the, the who named it a global pandemic that was 443 days um, ago. And I think, so when I think the broader society and the, the whole context that I had it in at that time, I really think is the same, but has even become more evident today in the fact that we've learned a lot that, that our place in the world is not just about us. What, what we do affects other people's health. It affects how other people react. And so that context that we live in is so very, very important. And I, and I think that's something that has been missed in education um, and, and still is missed, that we need to be teaching kids in a relevant real world um, environment. And, and what I say is schoolwork needs to look like real work, um, because if we expect students to be able to work when they get out and, and be productive citizens and citizen leaders, then we need to have them doing that and learning that while they're in the context um, of, of a school. And, and I think this last year, we've also learned that, gosh, school is no longer a place, right? And, and been saying that a lot, but this year really proved it that now we need to think of how do we make school 24-7? And I don't mean that a kid needs to be sitting in front of a book 24-7, but we need to make everything we do in life education for everyone, right? The same way as I, I love that you called me a, a lifelong learner, right? And and I know I know that you are too because in your in your latest book, you you even gave us your legacy statement, which was I want to be remembered as someone who captures what's right in the world and shared it for the betterment of others, right? And and I hope I hope today that's something you're sharing from my book that I hope that is betterment, but that's part of that lifelong learning piece. And and one last thing to that is the hand in the back of the room that really came from, that was me as a student. I was that kid, and, and so many of them are, that was in the back of the room. If you couldn't tell me why I needed to learn it, I wasn't going to learn it, right? Because I needed to understand the, the why behind it in that real-world context. Well, so Byron, this last week I was in the recording studio for a couple of days reading Stronger Through Adversity, right? So you write them and then there's time that goes by and you forgot what you wrote and then you read the book for an audiobook version and then you're like, oh, wow, that's what I wrote. Um, but I am very acutely aware how, how, as a result of being in the studio, how I asked readers to, after sharing my own legacy statement, which you so kindly shared, that I asked readers to take the time to craft their own. And you never know what happens, right? Like you write the book and people read it wherever they read it in their coffee shop or you know, they hide it from their spouse because it's just a terrible read or whatever. But they, as a result of that, you never know if anybody takes action on it, except for the fact that I read your blog, which said, having read the book, I wrote my own le legacy statement. And Byron wrote, hopefully I will be remembered as a thoughtful leader who showed love for those I served by providing growth and development. So this book that you wrote, The Hand in the Back of the Room, is all about helping. This is an act of love, by the way, I think, in that it helps people understand how to grow and develop. And I, and I like that as a broader context, because sometimes when we think education, we think of a formal institutional process. But growth and development, we think, is a lifelong 
process, right? We're never stopped growing. I don't necessarily want to go back and take tests anymore, but I love the opportunity to have life test me. And I think that's where your book goes. It's a lot about what do we really learn? Are we learning these esoteric abstract concepts? And frankly, I feel like I'm telling too much about your book, but people go get the book and you'll see what I'm talking about here. But are we are we teaching kind of the, the brightest learners ideas that are so abstract that that grounds them in nothing practical? And then do we kind of dumb it down in vocational training to a point where we don't open the minds of people to not only the practical, but the broader application of what they know? So just riff with me on that for a minute, because I, I loved the way you frame practical, relevant learning. And let me turn it to the audience too, really quickly. For those of you joining us on LinkedIn or Facebook or, or YouTube or wherever you are today, I'd love for you to tell me kind of what do you think education should be? How much of it is applied learning pragmatics and how much of it is broader kind of uh, you know, just the humanities and the ability to see the broader picture of things? So, so go, go with it in terms of the hand in the back of the room. So I, I like what you said last. One, let me just say I love the fact that you used riff as the metaphor there because I, I want to be a rock star. You know that from reading my, my blog as well. So so let me take off with a guitar here, right? I um I love the applied part because gosh, I wish we could get to where we were 100 percent applied. And, and that doesn't leave out the arts and things that you've talked about, because I, I think that's really, really important, too. And, and again, I know you know this from from looking through my blog. I refer to art things a lot. And, and that's my mind. I, other than I have no talent, I consider myself an artistic leader because that's the way I think about things. Right. But but in in the book and and that piece of it. I, I love to use an example with, with what I was doing in agriculture science and, and teaching in the context of, of agriculture, which everybody can relate to. But I talk about one of the examples I always use that's a really basic example. We teach pH in chemistry. Now, most people don't really know much about pH other than the fact that you maybe take a piece of litmus paper and test that, right? But once you've really done your own soil testing and you've done that chemistry in the context of, of what that's going to be, how many hydrogen item atoms there are, what's that going to look like in terms of, of use of, of pesticides and different things. And again, we want to be responsible, so therefore we need to be precise. So those are the things that we need to be teaching. But until you've done that, you don't really understand that. And I love the fact that when I was teaching, I would have students say, gosh, we learned about pH, but I didn't really understand what that did or what that, what that meant. And so I think those real examples, again, making schoolwork look like real work, how do we make everything applied? And I know that's a huge, that's a huge ask. And that's very aspirational on my part to think, gosh, if we could have everything be applied. But I, I think that's why sometimes we become better, better um, lifelong learners as we become adults, because we're learning it in that context real time as we're doing it, right? I think it's easier to be, you said, I don't have to take any tests anymore, don't want to take any tests anymore, right? But we're learning, but we love learning because we're learning it in real time. And we're learning it 
in in the real world context that it is. So how do we make that look more like that for for our students? And and then I think the other thing, Joseph, that that in in the book that, that I'm sure that you found was the fact that that's really a leadership lesson as well, because with the teachers that I worked with on on how we really set up this context of agriculture, teaching the, the biology standards in the context of agriculture, we, we became this learning organization of, hey, what are the things that are that are easily taught in a biology class that are those abstract items, the things that kids need to know? What And then what are the things, let's put that together like a glove as to what are the things that need to be taught in the context of that. And that really became a leadership lesson um, in and of itself of, of a team collaboratively working together um, to put that to put that together. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've never taught kind of K through 12. That's never been the audience, but I've taught at the university level. And and I taught, for example, human sexuality. And, and I think all the things you can teach about human sexuality uh, lots of you know gender identity stuff, and it's, it's important. But I was really keen on teaching things like sexually transmissible diseases uh, and pregnancy and, and issues that I thought were like, you know, your mom and dad may have had that conversation with you, but you're in a college course right now. And when you leave, you should not only be more understanding of the complexities of our sexuality, but you should be able to protect yourself from death and unwanted pregnancy, right? I mean, those are considerations and you should not be a transmitter of disease to people that you proclaim to have some level of deep emotional intimacy. So, so I, you know, I, I think I was always trying to make sure that there was applied value in education, but I can tell you, I've been in some classes as a student where I really don't think my professors on Marx, Nietzsche and Freud really gave a rip about whether or not any of those ideas landed in a way that could have made me a better person, relevant in the world around me. It's something about figuring out the balance, the obligation of the educator to help a student find relevance in the thing. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And then if you would take us from your reaction to that into a space that I'm really interested in, which is the empathy for teachers that parents demonstrated, at least in a short-term way, uh, when the lockdown happened and whether or not you think we're going to maintain that kind of empathy or are we going to continue to devalue teachers back to the point that we had them before the pandemic. So first, your reactions to the essential balance of, of pragmatics and the responsibility on the educator and then to the issue of how are we going to treat educators going forward. So I think where where I go with with that first part to answer the first part there, and you were talking about the the you know taking different subjects and what have you, and I I go back to there's there's so many ways that you can bring the the past in, you could bring literature in, you could bring philosophy in, and and I want to give an example here because I I actually pulled this because. Um, this was really the start of where I, I started reading your your latest book as well. And it I used Charles Dickens and A Tale of Two Cities to, to then really compare to our our pandemic time. And and I used the, the phrase, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I, I used the phrase from that book that starts out, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness. Now, 
here's where, so, so I'm trying to give a real world example of what you asked. Here's where we can take literature and pull that into a real world context. That made me think. So then that blog became all about this, this we're in the best of times because we're learning a lot during pandemic. We're in the worst of times because it's a pandemic. And, and then we're also, we have some wisdom and some foolishness that we've seen um, over the years. So I, I think that's where we just have to be creative and what are the things that we can use? How can we bring, now, if you just give a tale of two cities to kids, uh, and I'll argue with anyone who wants to argue with me about this, just give that to them to read without putting it into some context or having them reflect on some context, I'm not sure the average kid's going to get much out of that reading, right? Um, so I, I, that's what I use as the example there. Now, to your point of, of empathy and, and the parent piece, I, I will say that without a doubt in the last year, we, we have certainly improved, increased exponentially probably our family involvement in schools. And, and, and I think that our whole attitude of parents toward education has, has changed. Um, the schools that have done it, the schools that have done it well, they listened to their parents. They listened to the parent who said, gosh, I'm having trouble on these days where you haven't coordinated, where I need all devices on deck in my house and I don't have enough devices on deck for, for my kids, right? So I know that's a very simple example, but I think it's taught us how much we do need to listen. Um, and, and you know this, you you talk about this as well. You, you know, leaders listen as opposed to talk. Um, and, and if we're listening to a conversation between a leader and somebody else, we, we can even take that percentage of time, right? Make it coefficient. How well is that leader listening? And so I think we've learned that. And, and that's become a part then of that empathy. I think the best, the schools that have done this the best have also listened to their teachers. Um, in, in terms of what's it look like with the students? What's it look like to have part of your students online, part of your students in person? What's it look like to have all your students online? What's it look like to have a, a class of 20 and only two online? All of those are variables that make, you know this from what you do online, what you do live and all of these kinds of things. It is it becomes more and more difficult when you're in a hybrid setting, what I'll call a hybrid setting, where part of the people are in person, part of the people aren't, right? And so we've had to show empathy for that stand, from that standpoint. We've also had to show empathy. I, I think the other piece where, where we see, and, and you talk about this in, in Stronger Through Adversity as well, the, the leaders who have really listened to what's going on in the personal life of, of the teacher or the family, I'll, I'll compare both there, um, you know, everybody had different attitudes during this COVID piece, right? Some people were very scared, very nervous. Um, some people were don't really care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do and, and it'll be all right. Right. And then there were those of us who were probably somewhere in the middle, right. Of, of all of that. And what I found was that everybody's reality was their reality and very real for them to us, for us to question that reality 
I really worry about because how, how can we how can we do that because we don't know the context um, that they're in right and so do I think it will continue? Gosh, in, in in stronger through adversity. Once again, another thing that I learned from that. You talk about leaders lead for the future, right? Or or you're leading for the future. I I hope that we continue that. I worry. I worry about that for businesses, right? Will businesses continue to think about think about all the things that have happened and that it's not about just making money. It's about that. You, you talk about that customer experience and all that all the time. Um, I hope we don't forget that. I hope that we continue um, to rise to the challenge. And, and I think that I think we will um, in the standpoint of we've got all of this accelerated learning now we've got to do um, and recovery of learning, whatever term you want to use there. Um, so we're going to have to continue to have those parent relationships to be able to uh, to do that. But but I think the key is we've, we've got to keep listening. I, I think it comes down to, and I know that almost is cliche for a leader at times, but that truly listening to what's going on with, with our families um, and with our students, I would argue they are our customers. Education's a little different in that we have a wide range of customers, right? We have the businesses that hire the students. We have the colleges that take the students. We have the parents, the students themselves. So, so we have a lot of stakeholders there to, to think about, but I think the key is just making sure that we're that we're listening. So this is a you speak to this as the educator of the year in your in your state. I want to say Indiana. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, and that was a few years back. It was, uh, but but clearly you earned not only this from a standpoint of a a thinker, but you've been in the trenches as a teacher and had to do that magnificent stellar work that gets you to be that level of recognition within a state. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that you're right, that we don't go and look, my kids are long since grown. Um, and they don't, they don't go to check in with teachers anymore who make sure that they can, they can read, write and do math. Right. But, but I would hope that people understand that when they send kids off to school, this isn't just somebody who's kind of warehousing their kid and, and providing some essential services, but but not a super important framer of the future for us all. Um, and when they got that empathy of having to try to take on more of the teacher role, they got to see what professional educators are all about, that this is a profession built in science and craft. Um, so anyway, that's my, my thing. Let me tell you what people are gonna get, because I really want y'all to, we're, we're gonna have our time together. We got another eight or nine minutes together with Byron, but. I want you to benefit from him on a lifelong learning journey, right? So a minute ago, he's talking about anxiety and where anxiety falls and how people have had different levels of anxiety. Well, when I was reading his blog, I got to see him share very authentically and honestly about his first trip on a plane, which happened to be before I had to take my first trip on a plane. And so I got the benefit of his authentic processing of his own experience, but I also got it put in a context of, anxiety management, change readiness, kind of what leaders need to think and do to respond to uncertainty. There's just a lot in there. And so as you go through his blog, which is now scrolling on the bottom, let me just swap, swap that out so you can see his actual blog there. Um, and so as you go into this place, his WordPress site, you're going to see his blog and he blogs a lot. Like you're much more prolific than I am. You blog multiple times a week, sometimes daily. I mean, you're 
and it's amazing because sometimes he'll he'll have a full day of doing workshops with leaders and seminars and all that. And then at night he'll go and watch something on television and he'll excerpt a piece of it. And he kind of almost needs to educate, kind of take the natural occurring educational lesson that's in front of him and then position it in a couple of paragraphs for us. So I encourage you strongly to go to Byron's website. I wanna make sure you also, I only popped it up a couple of times here. I wanna make sure that you know to go to his book because it's a resource that's gonna to go to you long after uh, this uh, this particular live stream is over. So please check it out over at Amazon as well. All right, so let me let me give you some of the kinds of things you've talked about in your blog and let you just react to some of them. Uh, you talked about the fact that we have to move from what is to what if. And I love that. I know you brought that from your learnings of others, but what do you really mean by going from what is and no, if I remember the way you framed it, to what if? Well, I think when we think about what is and what what we know, it's just that, right? Those are things that we that we know. Those are the things that we know them to be right now. And so that would be so. So let's use education as the example there really quickly. Right now, we we know or what is that we hold schools accountable, at, at least in my own state and many of the other states, we hold them accountable for kids passing a one shot state test, state standards. And that's the what is right. So when I say what if, for me, what if becomes, so we've learned in the last year, that's not a real good way to do it because what if you end up in this situation that we've done in a, in a pandemic, what if we end up that way? How do we then know where our students are and what outcomes do they have? You, you know, we've got students that have lived through this now that are graduating this year, right? So, so we need to rethink and say, what if we really looked at our students as they're coming out with their outcomes of what they're able to do? You, you know, are they ready to be enrolled in, in college? Are they ready with certifications to be able to go to work? Have they had apprenticeships or work-based learning, you know, opportunities there for them? So hopefully that gives you an example of oh, what it is. And it's such a beautiful tie-in to a comment that we've got. If you'd like to add comments to your thoughts on education, the future of education, empathy for teachers, the role of education in relevance, any of that, please jump on in. But let me uh, bring this along because I love this guy anyway. Joe is one of the smartest people I know. And he writes that schools, middle and high school, not to mention college, need more courses with inquisitive thinking, the EI, not the IQ. Business is looking for this, not just so-called intelligence. Thanks for Joseph and Dr. Byron. Let me, uh, let me take that into, I know you write a lot about curiosity and, and kind of the inquisitive process. So I'm gonna just, I'm gonna let you handle Joe. This is way out of my league. Go ahead. No, I think, gosh, I love that um, because that that is right up my alley, right? How do we be curious? How do we let students come up with, I, I think this goes to, how do we let students come up with the answer? I tell people the most fun I had teaching, and I did a lot of lab work as an, as an ag science teacher. The most fun days were when our labs did not go as planned or didn't work out at all. Because then guess what? I got to step back and say, I have no clue as to why this didn't work, but let's figure it out. And so then the students did that, right? It wasn't, 
it wasn't about me telling them exactly what to do. And here's a lab that's laid out exactly for you. And if you do it step by step, it'll be perfect. And if you miss a step, it's going to screw up. Kids don't learn from that, right? They don't even like to do stuff like that. But but the more we can let them be be curious, and I, I love that. And and yes, we've got to do we've got to do more of it. And and I I I preach this to teachers all the time. If you and teachers that do then take that advice, they they always they always message me back and they're like, "You're right. Teaching is so much more fun when it's when it's this way." Um, you know, we have to step back and be vulnerable. You, you know, as leaders, we talk about this, the vulnerable leader who can step back and honestly say, I don't know. And, and I think the teacher that can step back and say, I don't know, but let's learn it together. Our kids learn so much more. Um, and it's so much more exciting for both the teacher and the student. I feel like it's CNN or something. I got so many banners and images on the screen right now. I got to, I got, I'm overstimulated with my own banner action here. Let me, uh, let me simplify this down for you. Let's go to, to this. Um, I'm going to make sure that you know to go to his WordPress site. I guess I'm doing that in every way I can now on ticker and otherwise. Go to his WordPress site. Check out the book, The Hand in the Back of the Room. Uh, look him up by his name. Um, and you will find, I think, the two biggest resources you're going to need in this space. Uh, let's talk one minute about intersectional, intersectional learning since I teed that up earlier. Then I want to do the lightning round and give everyone some insights on where I'm heading with some of these live streams in the future. So with that, uh, tell me what you mean by intersectional learning, because I think that's what you demonstrate all the time. It is about being inquisitive. It is about being a, a uniter of seemingly disparate concepts. Yes. And if you again, look at what I read. I don't read very many education books. Um, and, and I'm the first to admit that because I do believe in this intersectional learning. I want to learn from others. So so I'm pulling your books into this, Joseph. This book was one of the most meaningful ones that you've written in my world. Um, and it's the Zappos experience. And and if you look at my my Twitter piece, it says, wow, I, I create wowful um, educational leadership that came from this book. I used when I was turning a school around, I used concepts from this to create things like cow awards, creator of wow for our, for our teachers. And, and then when I think about leading the Starbucks way, that's another one that I've used. So learning from Zappos, learning from Starbucks, learning from the, the experience of, of the folks that throw the fish, right? That, that we've learned from that's intersectional learning. How can, and I'm hoping that there are maybe business people on this that say, gosh, I can learn that concept from, from education as well. So that's, that's the intersectional learning piece. All right. So I want y'all to, now that he's shown every book, I think I've written, no, there were probably a couple more that weren't, didn't get shown, but boy, that was a really great infomercial. I should clip that and use it later. Um, now that you've been so supportive of my work and you always have been, and I think that's another part of this you know, the growth mindset is one where you celebrate the, the successes of others, you learn from the successes of others, you learn from people who have nuggets that you can call. They may not all be relevant to you, but you find the ones that you can't apply. I mean, it's just a, a lovely thing. And you encourage us all, you write a lot, you stimulate my thought leadership to the degree that I have any. Um, and I am so grateful for that. So I want others to join me on my journey. Uh, make sure you go to this blog site, Byron Ernest wordpress.com. Got it? Anybody out there confused? If so, give me a call after the show. And then obviously, as I take myself out of the mix so that you can see the book title without my big head in the way, 
uh, the hand in the back of the room, connecting schoolwork to real life. Those are the two calls to action I would encourage you to do. As you follow him on your blog, on his blog, you'll hear all of his adventures, many of which to come that I can't wait to hear about. So we'll uh, join in and all that in due time. In the meantime, I dropped out of the stream. Nobody was hearing me. I was talking and I was so articulate for the only two minutes I was articulate, I was off the screen. All right, so we're gonna, tr we're gonna transition now from whatever it was I was saying that you don't know to where I'm going to say, which is lightning round. Let's ask a few questions that are somewhat personal but not overwhelming, uh, and here you go. Are you ready, quick answers? Dr. Mm -hmm. Pamela Harrison. She was my, um, my dissertation lead for my doctoral work and um, recognized talents that I had and helped me hone those. Which is what great leaders and great educators do, right? They see things in us sometimes we don't see in ourselves. Let's go with the band, nothing more. The band, nothing more. Um, very talented individuals, knowledgeable individuals who write songs that make me think as a, uh, as a leader. Like everyone wants to change, but nobody wants to change themselves. Oh, I like that. I like that. How about um, how about Heath Ernest? Heath Ernest is my son, and I learn from him every day. He, I'm very, very proud of him, and he's taught me a lot about education. Uh, raising a raising a kid, raising a boy, teaches you a lot about education that I can use with parents and students. All right, one last one. Hope Ernest. My wife and my biggest critic, um, and and also does a great job of helping me be the best that I can be. Well, thank thank her on our behalf because we get some of the fruits of that that being the best you can be in all of your writings. I look forward to more books, man. I, I want to stop. I want you to catch up with me on book production. That's the only complaint I have about you. You do plenty of blogs. Why don't you call a little of that blog stuff around some themes, pull it into a book and get one out really soon because why don't like we do one up. together why all right do we do well, one together? yeah from your lips to god's ears uh if i could write while i'm sleeping we could probably pull that off in the short term all right thanks so much byron i Thank am you. a huge fan and i hope you will become one too as uh you get to know his work more so with that in mind let me take his banner off i have this kind of sad thing to say which is that for a bit we're going to put on pause the live stream. I missed the last two live streams because the world, this is such a mixed blessing. The world is opening up, at least my world. I don't think the global world is, but the United States is opening up. My clients are opening up. My travel is opening up. I feel like I'm on the road more than I am home right now, which is a completely inverse phenomena to what it was like for a year where I couldn't remember what the road looked like. But you get to that point when you have been on the road a long time and you come home, you don't know if the bathroom is on the left or the right because you've been in hotels so much. I'm kind of back to that place again. Uh, I also know what it's like fighting for overhead space in a, in a plane now, and I'd forgotten all about that. So unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon how you like to look at it, um, I am going to be doing so much of that, at least in the next six weeks, that we have, we had a bunch of really amazing people scheduled. Um, so this, you know, the Chip Conley's, the author of Peak and the Joe Pines and 
oh, just a remarkable people. And, and I had to reach out to them and say, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. Would you forgive me? The ability to kind of just respond to a bunch of clients who really have a, a pent up need. Um, and they've been so gracious. They are just cool people. So we're talking about rescheduling them in a few months, kind of getting back on the cycle. If I have a chance, let's say I'm on the road somewhere and I don't have my cool brick background on me and you're just going to see, you know, another hotel curtain, I might just pop in to do a live stream, do about a half hour, talk about some issues that are relevant um, from a customer experience perspective, from a leadership perspective, from a resilience perspective. That's where we'll go if you'll be so kind as to engage me. But it'll be a little more impromptu. You'll get a message probably the day before, uh, but we won't be consistently providing the live streams at this same time, same station. So um, forgive me that. Thank you so much for understanding in advance. And we'll continue to be writing our monthly LinkedIn live newsletter. That's gonna continue and we're, man, that thing is taken off. LinkedIn live newsletters, strongly recommend it. Whoa. Um, and then we'll be doing our regular newsletter. So if you're on our newsletter thing, we send out a complimentary newsletter every month. The content is different from the LinkedIn live, but we'll still be doing weekly blogs as long as we can do that reasonably. I've got a bunch of them already in place for the next few months. So um, we're, we should be good there. But I did want to at least alert you to the fact that some of that would change. Hey, thank you, Joe, for saying God bless and safe travels. I appreciate it. The live stream will be missed. I'm glad that it will be missed. You know, you'd hate it to have people go, oh, thank God it's over. Um, so thank you for, for those kind words. That's all I have for today. Everyone, thank you so much. We will see you at the next reasonable opportunity. Let's let the creeks lower a little bit so we can wade through it together. Thanks so much for your time.